Well, I'd like to invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to Acts 17 as we draw our conference weekend to a close and also worship the Lord today on the Lord's Day. This is Paul's proclamation of God to the idolatrous Athenians and really to the idolatrous Americans as well. Let's start by reading. Let's read that whole section together, starting in Acts 17, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, his companions, waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Rather, they debated with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this so Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. As we learned on Friday evening at the start of our weekend together, when Paul visited Athens, he was staggered, really, by the extent to which this famous city had been overcome and overwhelmed by idolatry. It seems the Grand philosophies of the likes of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle had not lifted these people out of their base and common popular idolatry. The ancient writer Petronius said in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man, and that was true. Perhaps the only rival that I can think of to Athenian idolatry is perhaps American idolatry. It's become the norm in our country to promote self worship in a way that is really unparalleled in any society at any place in the history of the world. Love yourself. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Be true to yourself. Respect yourself. Serve yourself. Treat yourself. Enjoy yourself. All those things sound like slogans from commercials that we've all seen, right? And if self-love ever leads to any kind of wrong, you just need to what? Forgive yourself. And so it is that this form of creature worship, 
The love of the self makes America, with its population of 320 million selves, this may be the most idolatrous nation in the history of the world. Is that not what characterizes the most popular form of a religion in this country with the false promises of the health and wealth and prosperity preachers? That's what Justin Peters has unpacked for us this weekend, that America's most popular form of religion for many The very face of Christianity is that which serves the self. It's a sensual religion. It's a religion that's designed to coddle the individual, to promote comfort and ease. It's really an idolatry that's been tailor-made for modern man. As you'd expect, the unbridled worship of the self has led to disastrous consequences in our society at large. We're quickly becoming the divided states of America. Because instead of one nation under God, indivisible, we're 320 million individuals following 320 million selves commanded by 320 million petty little dictators. How are you going to bring them together? As one, marching in lockstep. Good luck. At the individual level as well, This self-worship has been destroying the souls of individual Americans and individual American families. I keep seeing reports all the time, seem to come out with regularity, that this is the unhappiest generation ever. The unhappiest generation ever, really? Isn't that ironic? Since that is the promise of self-worship to provide absolute happiness? But the Bible tells us this, that idolatry, at its root-level sin of the heart, covetousness, greed, an insatiable desire for more for the self. Covetousness is, Colossians 3, 5, idolatry. Idolatry, covetousness, is at the heart level a corrupting, defiling thing that hollows out the self and empties the self. It does the very opposite of what it promises to do. Well, back to the Athenians. They may not have taken selfies. It seems to be the Artifact of our idolatry, isn't it, right? Selfies or Instagram pages. The Athenians didn't take selfies. They didn't curate their Instagram images. They went to the Athenian craftsmen, an industry that served their idolatry, and they built and sold little idols, little figurines, statues, totems, symbolic tributes to the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. And So as Paul is walking around, as he surveys the marketplace, his spirit, it says, is provoked within him. It was for the love of God that he was provoked. He's angry because of these little petty worship stealers, thieves of God's glory, daring to be. And so he started talking with people, started evangelizing them. And that got the attention of the resident philosophers, the institutional philosophers who started disputing with Paul and they brought him up to explain his new teaching to the examination board at the Areopagus. Standing there before the Areopagus, Paul draws attention to what he considered to be an interesting particular artifact of Athenian culture, this inscription on this altar dedicated to the unknown God. And from there, Paul states his thesis in Acts 17, 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So as we conclude our conference weekend, and as we offer up our worship today to the true and living God on this, the Lord's day, we too want to join Paul in proclaiming the God who is yet unknown to far too many. And I pray that you will know him. We'll cover the ground this morning in four points. Four points, the introduction, the instruction, the exhortation, and then finally the conclusion. Introduction, instruction, exhortation, and the conclusion. We'll start here where everything starts with Paul's introduction to the true and living God. And you might just jot down next to the word introduction, this is who God is. This is who God is. That's the introduction. For Paul, raised as a Jew, his introduction to God as a child went all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So no wonder he takes the Athenians to the very same starting point here in verses 24 to 26. 
He's introducing them to the God that he has known from childhood. He says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. We'll stop there. In contrast to the thousands of little statues and figurines set up in the streets of, of Athens, in contrast to the complex, sophisticated ideas of the philosophers, the materialism of the Epicureans, the dualism of the Stoics, we can add in contrast to the idols of America, most especially the little gods of selfhood in each individual, Paul's opening salvo is a masterpiece in its concision and in its depth. This is the God who is. And what he unfolds for them, what he unpacks here is God as the omnipotent creator, the sovereign Lord, the eternal spirit, the infinite provider, and the wise governor of all mankind. He's the omnipotent creator, the sovereign Lord, the eternal spirit, the infinite provider, and the wise governor of all mankind. Let me break that down for you. And as I do, especially for most of you who have participated in the conference weekend, I'd like you to call to mind some of these images that you've seen in Jeff Williams' presentations. Think about the God who made all of that. As you read the words, let those images flood your mind. Think about the God who always sees from that elevated perspective all the time. The God who observes that kind of imagery, things that until the space program, no human being had ever seen. He sees that at all times from all angles, whether close in or from very, very far away. Whatever else we are tempted to worship, as Americans or Athenians or any other people, any God that is not this God, the true and living God, is an infinitesimally small God. Not just as the small G, but with a font size four G. Notice first, God is the omnipotent creator. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. The God who made the world and everything in it. Paul just summarized for these Athenians, for these Gentiles, these pagans, what is written in the creation narrative of Genesis 1. He boils that chapter down into that one verse, that one phrase. When Paul says the word world, he's using the word cosmos when referring to the world. As if he were referring just to the earth itself, he'd probably have used the different word, the word gay. It refers to the land, refers to the planet some strange quarters of our, our world right now, the Western world, people are starting to worship Gaia. That's the planet itself. Well, that comes from this Greek word gay, which refers to the land or the planet. So the, the word cosmos, though, is broader than that. It refers to the cosmos, that, that which has literally, the word means to be arranged, to be put into an order, cosmos. We think of cosmetology or cosmetics, I guess some people need to be put into good order by uh, the rest. So Paul summarizes the entire heavens and the earth as the created cosmos, the order. So God made the world, seven, Acts 17, 24, made the cosmos as well as everything in it. After he created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 tells us that God then filled the heavens and the earth. He created it, then he filled it. Hebrews 11.3 tells us that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. No, no, no pre-matter, no, no matter that existed prior to the world, coming, the heavens and the earth coming into existence prior to Genesis 1.1, nothing was there except God, the God who is. The first three days of creation week, God created, yes, and then he ordered the earth and he arranged the earth in days four through six. He gave shape and form to what had been shapeless and formless. Let me read 
You can look there if you'd like to, Genesis chapter 1. I'm sure you can make it right back to Acts 17, but Genesis 1-1 through verse 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. We see God the Father involved in this creation by speaking. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. But in Colossians 1.15, we learn that it was by the Son of God, who is the image of the invisible God, it says there that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1.3, we read, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who not only created all things, but he also upholds all things in the universe by the word of his power. So he created all things and he sustains all things. Colossians 1.17, in him, all things hold together. In other words, without him, everything comes apart in a moment. In an instant, without him, everything would disintegrate into oblivion. It's his power that not only called everything into existence, but sustains its existence. So we see from Genesis 1 that God the Creator is a multi-personal God. That is, we say, triune. Here we can see evidence of multiple persons in the Godhead since Elohim created, verse 1. And the Ruach Elohim, Spirit of God, is how that translates. The Spirit of God hovered, verse 2. Adding what we know from the New Testament, we learn that God the Father created by the agency of the Son of God. And so we discover the doctrine of the Trinity is at work in creation. God created by speaking. By speaking. The, the ability to communicate means intelligence. There's a mind at work. And it signals God's intent to create beings that are capable of communication, that have intelligence that can reflect on what he's made, that can search it out and discover it and learn it, and they can know the mind behind the science. Also because God created by speaking, we see here that when he speaks, he maintains a distinction between the creator and the creation. That is to say, as the Greeks wrongly thought, there is no stuff of divinity that kind of emanated out of God to form accidentally the material world. It's a wrong thought that they had. As infinite, eternal spirit, God spoke and is thus separated from and distinct from and distinguished from the material creation. When God called the light good, we see that God made the very first value judgment, thereby making God's judgment the basis of all valuation, that there is a good and there is a bad, and good is whatever God says it is. And bad is the opposite. When God saw the light, when he pronounced it good, as John Calvin said, here God is introduced by Moses as surveying his work that he might take pleasure in it. Think about that for a moment. As we said earlier, before the space program, what human being ever saw some of those nebula, galaxies, spiral galaxies, Images of things that Jeff put up on the screen that he even said as a scientist, he said, we don't know what that is. Beautiful things. Who's taking pleasure in that? God. Taking pleasure in his artwork. John Calvin continues saying, but God does this for our sake. To teach us that God has made nothing without a certain reason and design. Oh, how humanity needs to hear that right now. That they are made with a purpose, with a design to bring glory to God. Is there any higher calling, any higher purpose? I mean, saving the country, saving the nation, making it great again, whatever. Those are good things. 
Is there anything higher than bringing glory to God? Making him known? Any better way to use a life? We have a lot of purposeless, aimless people today who have no idea why they exist. God separated the light from the darkness on day one. Day two, he separated the waters above the earth from the waters below. Day three, he separated the water from the dry ground, calling it land. And after giving shape and form to the earth, only then did God proceed to fill the earth. Makes a lot of sense. Prepared the ground before he planted. Started with the earth's vegetation on day three, and then God filled the heavens with luminaries, sun, moon, and stars on day four. Then he filled the waters with sea creatures and filled the skies with flying creatures on day five. And finally, the land animals on day six, and then mankind on day six, calling them male and female. When God made distinctions by separating and naming what we may call antithesis, distinguishing this from that, God established the necessary precondition of wisdom and knowledge. He established the necessary precondition of all science and all inquiry and all investigation, whether in the physical world or the non-physical world, whether it's the world of things and matter or it's the world of ideas. God sets the necessary precondition of wisdom. God defined boundaries of time. He designated a name to mark time. He called the light day and the dark he called night. And then he also designated a name to mark time the first day and the second day and so on and so forth. He set matter in motion on day four, clearly lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, to be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And thus he establishes the necessary preconditions of science to enable mankind to trace the work of his hands, to follow along, to measure things, measure time. So as Paul introduces the true and living God to the Athenians, he starts by what is really theology 101. These are the ABCs. This is ground level foundational stuff and they are ignorant of it. To them, this is the unknown God. Starts by proclaiming God as omnipotent creator. God made the world and everything in it. This is not like any God that they have known in the Greek pantheon some imaginary God that is capricious and self-serving, that's arbitrary, that throws temper tantrums and commits acts of immorality and murder and rage and jealousy, that's a passionate creature like they are that is affected and throws tantrums. The true God is not like that at all. A total contrast. The true God uses power creatively and beneficently He called all things into existence and he formed and filled the universe that he made, the world that he made, and then he sustains it with his goodness and he fills the earth with beauty and he fills it with good food and he provisions us with air to breathe, with sights for our eyes, sounds for our ears, good tastes for our tongues, for our mouths, things to hold, things to pick up, things to examine. Well, this God as creator sets up the next thing that Paul introduces about God is that God is the sovereign Lord. Since he created everything, called everything into existence out of nothing, since he sustains all things, it stands to reason that this almighty God is also, verse 24, the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. Whatever he says goes, right? I mean, he called into existence. It's kind of his game, isn't it? Hard for Americans to grasp this point, right? Right? Might even be a challenge for our Athenian forebearers as well as forefathers of modern democracy, but this lordship language is the assertion about a great monarch, about about a sovereign king, and that is completely consistent with what the Bible teaches, that as sovereign lord, God is the king, the lawgiver, and the judge. And for you civic students, all three branches of government consist in this one being, right? You've got the legislative and the judicial and the executive branch all wrapped up into one. We tout our constitution, but our constitution exists because anybody who occupies one of those branches of government is like us, what? A sinner, untrustworthy. So you need to divide the power because you can't trust one against the other. You need to be held in check. It's as it should be on a human level. But when you have a benevolent God, the all-powerful, sovereign, No need to divide power, no ability to divide power. 
As lawgiver, he legislates all morality. He dictates all ethics. As the judge, he commends what is righteous and he condemns any deviation from righteousness, his holy law, and he adjudicates any difference of opinion on the matter. And finally, as king, he executes the sentence of justice. Remember from the previous point, he has this right of sovereignty by virtue of being the creator. He maintains this right by virtue of the fact that he is the omnipotent creator, the all-powerful, unable to be overthrown. No coup attempt, and many have been tried, will prevail against God. And yet this omnipotent creator, this sovereign Lord, is good, is kind, is loving, which is obvious by the kind of world that he has created and sustains that he hands over to us to enjoy. Notice thirdly that Paul introduces God as eternal spirit. He is also eternal spirit. He, that is to say, he doesn't live in temples made by man. That points to his essence as an eternal spirit, an omnipresent spirit whose being transcends space and time. In plain English, God is everywhere, all at once, all the time. God said this to Israel, and he chided his people, Israel, who ought to know better, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So what is the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Therefore, God does not, as Paul says, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he, by the way, reducible to any cast image or any graven image. He's not captured by the poet's imagination or the artist's skill or the sense of self that I have or my feelings or my emotions. He is not reducible to anything that comes from man. He is who he is. He's eternal spirit. He transcends all things. He pervades all things. God has to be eternal by virtue of the fact that he is the first and only sufficient cause for all that is. The reality of God, he is the very precondition for intelligibility. Without him, nothing makes sense. With him, as the Bible teaches, everything makes sense. Not just the stuff of heavens and earth, but the laws that govern everything. He made both the physical, the non-physical aspects of the world, laws of physics, the reality of numbers, the laws of space, laws of time, but also laws of righteousness, laws of logic, laws of morality, etc., etc. God is the origin and source of all that's been created, and as the creator and the origin of something as basic as light, God is the source of energy itself, life itself, power, light, energy, life. Contra-evolutionary theory there was no spontaneous generation of the physical and material world or the non-physical and immaterial world either. It's a ridiculous fiction. That means God pre-existed the cosmos, the created order. God pre-existed atoms. Therefore, God is the self-sufficient, independent, absolutely free, and thus absolute sovereign. Since God created time and space, he is therefore eternal exists without the limitations of space and time. So God is omnipotent creator, he is sovereign Lord, he is eternal spirit, and then fourth, God is the infinite provider. He's the infinite provider, which is there in verse 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's not. This is just an affirmation of divine, what we call divine aseity, say of itself. It's just a fancy way of saying that God is totally independent. He is completely self-sufficient. We see evidence of this aseity continuing in verse 25. It says, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the infinite provider. There is no lack in his storehouse. When he gives, he doesn't lack anything. He doesn't give up anything. There's just an eternal flow, an infinite flow of provision from him of life and breath and everything. When God gives, he gives out of an infinite supply, infinite meaning not finite, no limits, no end to the resource. He's the only being, the only being whose essence it is to exist. He is the giver of existence. 
He is the one who gives being. God is the giver of life itself. It's the very source of the light in the heavens, of energy in the universe, and the life that flows in me and you. He's the infinite provider of life and everything else to his creatures. He's the one who gives them breath to sustain their physical life along with everything else besides food, water, strength. He gives intellect, ability. He gives will. He gives our family relations, our upbringing. He gives opportunity to live and thrive, pleasure, enjoyment, trial, suffering, and affliction. He gives it all, everything. Listen, as omnipotent creator, God is to be highly esteemed, greatly honored. As sovereign Lord, God is to be revered, feared, and obeyed. As eternal spirit, God is to be praised and worshiped and held in awe and wonder. As an infinite provider, God is to be appreciated and loved and thanked. Do you do this? Would you do this now to aid mankind in seeing him for who he really is? This creator, Lord, spirit, and provider for mankind, God governs the world in such a way that man should, we should feel our limitations. We should feel our limitations. So fifthly, Paul tells the Athenians that God is the wise governor of all mankind. Verse 26, God, it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And here it is, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God made one race of people, the human race. He started with one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And through their offspring, the earth's population grew and grew and grew. And because of sin became more and more wicked rebellious. That extended all the way up to the time of the great flood when God executed justice against the prevalent wickedness of mankind. It says that God covered over the earth with water. The earth was deluged by the fountains of the deep, breaking up, releasing their energy and their waters. And then rain came down from heaven. That canopy of water that God put up there, it broke and the rain gushed downward, drowning all but a few. Eight souls Noah and his wife, along with his three sons and their wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When Noah and his three sons emerged from the ark, God blessed them. God caused them to multiply and to fill the earth and to spread out across the face of all the earth. Shem is the father of the Semitic peoples, peoples of the near or the Middle East. Ham is the father of the peoples who occupied Africa and parts of India and Asia. Japheth is the father of the European peoples, those who roamed westward, eventually crossing the Atlantic to migrate over here to the Americas. Many of us come from Japheth. God is the one who did this. God is the one who distributed, who dispersed. He is the wise governor of all mankind. He determined and dispersed and distributed every nation of mankind to live on the face of their earth. And he prescribed their boundaries really hasn't changed much from the very beginning as you look around the world. God is the one who divided the world first by languages at the Tower of Babel. And then he sent the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth to their different places to be progenitors of new ethnicities of nations, determining the boundaries of their dwelling place. God's also the wise governor, by the way, of their histories. That's what's described there, having determined allotted periods refers to the times that they live in, the various challenges of those times, whether wars or famines or plagues. That's on a macro level, but even on an individual level. God, the one who rules all things by his providence, governs everything that comes into your life, everything that flows out of your life, everything in between. He is the governor of our history, of our times having determined allotted periods. Solomon wrote this, if you want to turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and following, he said, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Solomon understood this. He said, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. 
a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to loose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Why? Why has God done all this? Solomon answers that question in verses nine and following. What gain has the worker from his toil? I mean, if there's a time for all these different things and you can't determine it for yourself, but God determines that for you, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy, busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time, no matter what the time is. He's made it beautiful. Also, verse 11, he's put eternity into man's heart. So yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God is the omnipotent creator. He's to be highly esteemed, greatly honored. As sovereign Lord, he's to be revered and obeyed. As eternal spirit, he's to be praised and worshiped. As infinite provider, he's to be appreciated and loved and thanked. And as wise governor, what is that about? God is to be trusted by us. God is to be sought out by us. He's to be pursued by us. We are not meant, we're not created to find gain in the work of our hands. We're not meant to find our meaning and significance in the things that God has busied us with during our life. They point us to God where we find our meaning and significance. He is gain. Things that he gives us are gifts to enjoy, things to occupy our life with, a vocation, a calling to steward, gifts to steward. They're not gain. God is gain. So he gives all these gifts as signals, as signs to point us from the gift to the giver. God governs our lives on earth in such a way that we are meant to bounce up against our boundaries. We're meant to feel the boundaries. We're meant to feel the squeeze. So when you feel squeeze and pressure, that's God saying, look upward. Turn your eyes to heaven to see me. When we sense our limitations, we don't get frustrated. We just acknowledge we're limited. Limited in our understanding, limited in our energy, limited in our time, limited in our resources and our gifts, our talents, our skills, our experiences, and that's okay. Our limitations point us to the limitless giver of all things. We're to discern his providence. We're to discern how he governs our times. We're to accept our finitude because that's how he created us and he called us good. We're to acknowledge our weaknesses. We're to see our constant need and dependency on God. We're to give heed to that eternal longing that God placed inside of us that we might seek him and by his grace that we might find him. So much more to say here, but let's move on from Paul's just basic introduction of God to the pertinent point of instruction for these Athenians and maybe for us as Americans as well. Number two, second point, instruction. Instruction, and just jot down there this sentence, this is what God wants. This is what God wants. First of all, based on who he is, this is what God wants. The very first hint of instruction is that moral implication, that little word should in verse 27. And also down in verse 29, you can spot that word ought. Should and ought, those are moral imperatives. Why has God governed mankind in the times of man in this way? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Place a period after that quotation. For in him we live and move and have our being. Place a period there and start a new sentence. It's important. Paul goes on to say, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. Here's another moral imperative. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's like an image formed from the art and imagination of man. So there's a should and a should not in those verses. There's an ought and an ought not in those verses. If you will, a thou shalt and a thou shalt not. 
based on who God is, that he's creator, Lord, spirit, provider, and our governor, there are moral implications for our lives, and Paul boils them down to just two. Positively, God intends for us to seek him. Based on the clear evidence of who God is and what he's like, God intends for us to seek him. We've seen and heard this weekend about who God is, what he's like. There's been more than enough evidence that's been presented to us, added to the fact that we can look up, look down, look around, and the evidence of God is everywhere. I mean, through the lens of a microscope, through the lens of a telescope, with the naked eye even, we have ample evidence of the God who's there. We've mentioned this before, but Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 1, 19 to 21, what can be known about God is plain to mankind because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what's invisible to us, what we cannot see or perceive, God has through the creation made that visible, made it known, and now we can perceive it. So listen, we all know God at some level, to some degree. His power is evidenced. His nature is perceived clearly in the creation around us, in the babies that are born to us, the children that we hold in our arms, looking at those tiny little hands, fingers, and toes. Which one of us doesn't sit back and marvel, knowing that it's God who made that little baby? Oh, behold, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I remember listening to an interview with a woman named Wendy Thomas Russell, committed atheist, who as a mother, so sadly was committed to raising her children in atheism. And her life's goal was to disabuse her children of any notion that God exists. Turns out she had her work cut out for her. The author of the book, Wendy Thomas Russell, she wrote a book called Relax, It's Just God. She tells of how she discovered this vestige of a stubborn theism that was innate in her daughter. She writes this, or says this, I was in the car and my daughter announced to me that God had made her and that God had in fact made all children and all people. And I was so, you know, <laughs> she was so incredulous because she thought this seems like really big news and how you don't know it, mommy, is really beyond me. <laughs> the sense of God, the ability to perceive something of who God is and what he's like, as Mrs. Russell's little girl clearly perceived. The knowledge of God is never very far from any one of us. And yet, how complicated men have made this, turning it into quest. Notice how Paul describes it in verse 27, as men who are perhaps able to feel their way toward God. Paul uses here a very descriptive verb, one that portrays the seeker as kind of groping around in the dark as a blind man in a blacked out cave. He's just using his hands to feel his way around. I don't know if any of you have done any spelunking, been in a dark, dark cave where you have to like crawl through little passages and squeeze your body and manipulate it through and you get into the interior and you cannot see your hand in front of your face. You don't dare take a step lest it leads to a plunge to your death. So you feel your way around. That's how he describes the philosophers of Athens. Every now and again, and this is Paul's assessment of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who had brought him before the Areopagus. It's his assessment of all who pretended to judge his gospel. Every now and again, the man, man in his philosophy stumbles over and discovers truth about God only to immediately veer off course. You know the sayings, right? Even a broken clock is right twice a day or even a blind pig finds a mud hole every now and again. Paul adds a saying of his own, even philosophers grope around in a murky speculation, perhaps even find God, only to violate common sense, according to verse 28. And then verse 29, to dive, plunge headlong into inexcusable sin of idolatry. There in verse 28, Paul starts by citing the 6th century BC Cretan poet, Epimenides. Epimenides from a little city on the island of Crete. It says, in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul says, yeah, that's right. Since God is eternal spirit, since he's omnipresent and ever-present, God is never far from any one of us. He is always near. We indeed live and move and have our being in him. And that true implication about God 
is deduced from the true nature of God, which even the ancient poet, Cretan poet, Epimenides, got right. Get this, Epimenides got this right. Before Epicurus, before Zeno and the Stoics, Epimenides got that right before Aristotle and Plato, before Socrates was even born, before Athens was even a thing. Without the brilliance of Athenian philosophy, without the help of the Areopagus, Epimenides the Cretan, probably hearing it from across the pond over to his east from the Mosaic religion, Epimenides the Cretan got it right. Conversely, the Greek poet, Eratus, he got it wrong. Eratus wrote, for indeed we are his offspring. That's from his work Phenomena. His written work Phenomena, Paul cites him, really is an example of the rampant idolatry of Athens. I found the passage of Eratus from Phenomena in Greek, and translated it. It's an ode to Zeus, not to God to Zeus, the chief of the Greek pantheon. And here's what it says. In its context, what Aratus said, for we indeed as offspring, here's the context. Of Zeus, let us begin, the one whom men never leave unexpressed. Full of Zeus is every street and every marketplace of men. Even full are seas and harbors. In every way, everything imparts a revelation of Zeus, for indeed, we are his offspring. So the idea here, the Inaratus, is that since men are everywhere, Zeus is never without a witness, though he is unseen. And because as the offspring of Zeus, men are always around, everywhere present, in every street, every marketplace, even in the seas and the harbors, everywhere present, then Zeus is made manifest to the world in men who are his offspring. That's the idea. Paul's not commending that. He is pointing out, though, an inconsistency in Greek thinking. I mean, if the Greeks believe that they are the image of Zeus, what justifies them reducing God to a stone idol, which he brings up next? Look again, end of verse 28. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Are you foolish? Are you Are you insane? Even some of your own poets have said that you're the image of Zeus. So positively then, since God is creator, Lord, spirit, provider, governor, God wants us to seek him. Then negatively, God does not want mankind to commit the sin of idolatry, whether it's by crafting physical images, gold, silver, stone figures meant to symbolize or represent God, or whether it's by imagining God as something that he is not. Believe me. Friends, Americans are committing that form of idol idol worship all the time. How many times do we hear people say, well, my God would never condemn or judge or disapprove of everyone's lifestyle. My Jesus would never, never condemn that. My God is all about love and tolerance and understanding. And he wants you to be the very best you. That's idolatry on par with the Athenians. That's creating a false image of God by imagining God to be who he is not. It's misrepresenting God, certainly misrepresenting Jesus. How do we know God? Not by our feelings, not by our sentiment, not by what seems right to us or what lines up with our reason or intuition. We know God only in this way, by who he has revealed himself to be in the Bible, the written word of God. He didn't leave us guessing. He didn't stutter when he wrote. It's clear. As Paul summarizes for us, God is omnipotent creator. And as such, he's to be highly esteemed, greatly honored. God is sovereign Lord. Therefore, he's to be revered and obeyed. God's eternal spirit. He's one to be praised and worshiped and wondered at. God is infinite provider. He's the one whom we appreciate and love and thank And God is wise governor, teaching us to seek him as he really is and never ever to commit idolatry, never imagining God to be anything but what he is or who he is. And now we come to Paul's call to action. Verses 30 to 31, find out that God has given us witness here. Paul introduces the Athenians to God. He instructed them and now point three, exhortation. Point three is exhortation. And here's the sentence you can write next to that word. 
This is what God commands. This is what God commands. We see in verse 30 and 31 that God has called time on human ignorance. Having passed over pagan idolatry, not giving, a, giving that a pass, he still calls it a sin, he doesn't excuse it. He just postpones judgment until the gospel is preached. Now, time's up. God commands repentance, verses 30 to 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given us assurance by, or he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And thus ends Paul's speech before the Areopagus. He may have said more, we don't know, but this is what Luke has recorded for us. This is the essence of what Paul said. It's the sum and substance of what Paul said that day. We know by reading the context in verse 17, Paul had already taught. He'd been reasoning daily with the Jews, the God-fearers, and the pagan idolaters, and that includes the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So they got Paul's full 150-proof gospel with both barrels every day. And so what we're reading here is just a summary of his gospel. And when Paul said, times of ignorance, God overlooked, He's taking the Athenians back to where he started, back to the testament of Athenian ignorance in verse 23, that altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. And then Paul said, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. He's done that. Now, it's time to repent. It's time to repent. God has been patient, long-suffering, so it's time to repent. God has now issued a command, so it's time to repent. God has fixed a day of judgment. Be warned. It's time to repent. God has raised this Jesus from the dead, pointing the way, the only way to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's time to repent. The verb repent, metanoeo, literally afterthought. Afterthought, it means to change the mind. So it's, it's kind of like if you could find out in advance that the result of your choice would lead to pain and suffering, financial ruin, sorrow from your for your whole family, spoiling a lot of lives, if you had a chance to know ahead of time that that would happen and you had the chance to stop, back up, make an entirely different decision, would you do that? Absolutely, 100%, every single one would, right? If you could get a replay, a do-over, would you take it? 100%. That's what Paul's offering the Athenians here. He's revealing the future to them. The day that God has fixed, as we confessed earlier in the 1689, his decree. By his decree, he's fixed a day called judgment day. A veritable certainty in the mind of God. He's also appointed the judge for that day, which is his own son, Jesus Christ. The very one who died to save people from their sins, he is the same one who will judge those who refuse to embrace him as Savior and Lord. So for these Athenians and for us Americans, now that we know better, it's time to repent. Nothing stays the same. Nothing stays the same. How can Athenians know that Paul knows what he's talking about, that he's telling the truth? How can any American verify this? We're 2,000 years removed from this conversation on Mars Hill. All men everywhere can find proof that God means what he says, that Paul was right in what he preached in the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This stubborn, incontrovertible, irrefutable fact, it's an irremovable anchor that God has set deep into the record of human history the fact of the resurrection with which all men everywhere must reckon. No one can say, oh, but I didn't know. Certainly we can't say that, but no one can say that. I mean, sometimes every now and again, I see something, some, you know, click on some song on the internet or hear it on the radio or whatever, and some pagan, you know, 20 something group is pounding some rhythm out on their guitars and drums and everything else. And they're singing and they are attesting to, in their blasphemy, knowledge about God, knowledge about Jesus Christ, knowledge about the resurrection, knowledge about Christianity. It's everywhere. They know. Certainly we have seen 
and heard the testimony of the gospel for us for this whole weekend. Whoever would verify any of this, wish to verify any of this, you could pick up a Bible for yourself. You can read four different accounts of Jesus' life and ministry by eyewitness testimony, those who were there. Accurate testimony that's never been refuted, ever. I don't care what your philosophy 101 professor said. Have him come talk to me. No one can say, but I didn't know. You can read in the scripture, the account, you can read about his life, his birth, his life, his upbringing, short account in Luke 2 about his upbringing. You can read about his life and his ministry, his preaching of the kingdom of God, his miracles that he performed using power, divine power, showing power over the natural and the supernatural world. You see the account of divine power at work and operative in Jesus Christ at his immediate call. And his power was not used to destroy, but to heal, to do kindness, to do good. That's who he is. That's who he's representing God to us and the salvation of God to us in his mercy and his kindness and his grace. We can read also of his unjust being handed over to death the mockery of trials that he went through, the injustice done to this innocent man, this perfect man, this absolutely spotless, righteous lamb was then crucified on the cross. You read about his, the burial of his body in a tomb. We read about his resurrection on the third day. All of this, by the way, just as he predicted. His predictions are in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures recorded many centuries before the events that actually occurred. No one, not scientists, not religious nut jobs or charlatans, no one has ever refuted these scriptures. No one has ever refuted the accounts. No one has ever refuted the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we have the rest of the New Testament to interpret those facts for us, to tell us what they mean. The death of Jesus Christ is a death for sins, for the sins of all who would repent and believe. God pouring out his wrath, according to Isaiah 53, 4, on him instead of us who believe. Pouring out his wrath on him instead of us. Put his son to death on the cross, buried his body in the tomb, and resurrected him the third day, showing his approval of that sacrifice that anybody who would repent and believe would follow him in resurrection life. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what Paul's preaching and proclaiming to these people. We've seen his introduction. We've seen, heard his instruction. We've been confronted with his exhortation to repent. We come to a fourth and final point, the conclusion, the conclusion. And you can just write this sentence down. This is who God has chosen. This is who God has chosen. The author, Luke, describes what happened that day. After, after Paul spoke, we can see the reactions and we can see the, see the decisions that have made. We can see a clear-cut divide between the crowd what does God want? Ask, ask as, you, as you listen to this, just this conclusion, just ask this question. Think to yourself, what about me? What does God want for me? What should I do as a result of hearing this message from the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill? Here's what some of them did. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Bad reaction. Verb mocked refers to derisive behavior showing disdain by jeering or scoffing or sneering. The Epicureans mocked the resurrection because they're like today's secular atheists. They had a materialistic worldview. They believed only in what's natural. They denied the supernatural. There's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. That's supernatural power that doesn't exist. They don't believe in dead things coming to life. So they'd already made up their minds to reject any contrary evidence thrown into the, for their consideration. What's that thinking? That's called presuppositional thinking. They had anti-supernatural presuppositions and they rejected this conclusion out of hand before they even heard the evidence. Totally foolish. The Stoics mocked too. They mocked for a different reason. They're philosophical dualists. So they had room in their worldview for the supernatural. But because they didn't believe in the God that Paul proclaimed who created matter and called matter good in creation week, the Stoics believe matter is evil. So they thought it's absolutely ridiculous that Jesus or anyone else would want to be resurrected bodily? That's ludicrous. Salvation for them is all about escaping the body. Why would anybody want to return to the prison of the body? So these ignorant philosophers, the so-called 
wisdom lovers, the brokers of truth and knowledge, they mock the truth. That's one reaction. I don't recommend it. Make a joke of the gospel if you dare. God is not joking. He promises, verse 31, that judgment day is coming and it's coming very, very soon. Others said, hey, we'll hear you again about this. Oh, just friendly agnostics. They're not interested in following Paul's exhortation to repent. They want some more dialogue. They want to consider it. They want to turn it over in their minds. They still haven't been dethroned from the judge's seat in their own mind to bow before the God that Paul has proclaimed. They fancy themselves still as the judges and the arbiters. They're going to ponder Paul's truth. Maybe kind of toss it around their hands for a little bit, consider it, end up throwing it away in preference for something else new. We'll hear you again about this. Just want some more interesting conversation. Just want some more intellectual, new intellectual toys to play with. And so verse 33, Paul doesn't say, oh, they're so interested in my gospel. I'm going to come back here every single day. No, he doesn't do that. Paul went out from their midst. Eh, I got places to be. I got chosen people to go visit. He went out of their midst. Verse 34, some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. Praise God. Praise God that you and I are among those. When the dividing line was drawn, when, the, when, the, when that sword fell, shunk, drew the line in the sand, we're on the right side by God's grace. Some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Just one among all those Athenian philosophers, among the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Areopagite leaders, one of them, an important figure, Dionysius, joined up with Paul and his missionary band, joined. What does that mean? The word joined refers to discipleship. Believed removes any doubt. Dionysius believed, he repented, and notice what he did. As I said, coming to Christ means nothing is the same for you. He gave up his seat at the Areopagus and he joined Paul. His life radically changed. It changed forever. It was radically different. There's no going back for him. Also listening that day is a woman named Damaris, evidently a very prominent woman known in and by the Areopagus, along with others who accompanied Dionysus and Damaris. A small group of Athenians believed. They repented. They joined the apostle Paul, thus being rescued from idolatry, saved from the coming judgment of God, brought into an eternal relationship through Jesus Christ with the God who is there. Glorious, glorious. Josh mentioned in the opening he has had some people come up to him and we've heard this kind of, you know, a good number of times throughout the years that they'll come up and say, I didn't know anything like this, this conference existed in Greeley. As, a, as if, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> I get it, you know? You know what good came out of Nazareth? Jesus Christ. You know what good comes out of Greeley and any other place who's faithful to this gospel? The knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter where you're from. God's the one who chooses your boundaries, times of your place of habitation, the limits of your time, experience, and everything else. Praise God we're from Greeley. Why? We don't want this gospel to be dependent on where we're from. Like, wow, what a glorious message. Of course, it came out of New York City or LA. Content creators, of course. No, no, it's good. It comes from Greeley. It comes out of Nazareth. Praise God, because he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. My friend, what about you? Will you repent? Will you believe? Oh, that God would grant the gift of repentance and faith to join the courageous Dionysius who cut away from all and turned to follow Christ. To join the noble woman Damaris, a dear, dear woman, prominent, noble. Join the few others of us to follow the true and the living God in and by and because of the name of Jesus Christ. Bow with me, will you? Our Father, we count ourselves to be among the most blessed, privileged people on the face of the earth because you have put our lines and drawn our lines in wonderful, beautiful places. You have granted to us a salvation that is glorious. You've united us to Jesus Christ and our identity is found in him, not in any other factor, but in him and him alone. And we've been reconciled to you, Father. 
you the creator of heaven and earth. We've only begun yet to see the outer edges of your glory and we are silenced in wonder. So Father, we know that there are many days ahead, an eternity of life ahead of us, not just an eternity in time, but an eternity in quality of life to know you, true God who is there. Pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would grant salvation to those who do not know you, who are listening today. And for those of us who know you, let us step back in wonder, closing our mouths, bowing our heads, and offering you the praise and the worship that you deserve. May we honor and obey you and give you thanks all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.